2: Hello and welcome back to On The Continent, our weekly look at the big stories in football from across Europe. I'm Luke Moore.
0: And I'm Andy Brassel.
2: Okay, before we get into our roundup of what the latest is on the return of football or not, as the case may be throughout Europe, and talk about some players that may be on the move, there's time to tell you that there have been no fewer than 14 extra pieces of content for our Patreon subscribers in the month of April alone. That's 14 in April alone. And subscriptions start from as little as $5 a month. So if you're looking for extra things to listen to, read, and in some cases, watch during lockdown get over to patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily and sign up we're very grateful for the support and we think you'll get a great return um, on that investment that's patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily okay andy how are you today
0: uh i'm very well although over the weeks i am finding it's quite hard to pronounce my own name
2: okay why is that because you've just said it so often because you're so busy
0: Maybe that's it, or maybe this is revealing minor speech impediments because I don't normally have to say my own name. It's not like a Michael Vaughan and I refer to myself in the third person all the time. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky. I can see why Danny Kelly has struggled over the years. <laughs>
2: Well, I know it's funny that Michael Vaughan is the first person that comes to mind when it comes to talking to about oneself in the third person, because I know that you've been watching that uh, Chicago Bulls documentary on Netflix, The Last Dance. I have as yes. well. And a lot of those guys um, are, are, are fond of referring themselves in the third person. Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, uh, they're all at it pretty much throughout. It's quite, It's quite revealing.
0: Yes, they are. They are. And it's all the better for it.
2: Well Luke Moore doesn't enjoy it very much Um, Right (laughs)
0: Luke Aaron Moore
2: (laughs) Yeah exactly exactly It's worth a watch by the way when you're not listening to our podcast and you want to watch something a little bit different The Last Dance on Netflix is a strong Luke and Andy recommendation about the 19 Chicago Bulls Um, In France Ligue 1 and 2 are effectively done after the French government passed down a ban on events including those behind closed doors until at least August and probably September, I think. Despite the French football authorities wanting to try and come back, the decision has been taken out of their hands and they won't be back until next season. There'll be a meeting next month to decide the outstanding issues of relegation, promotion, um, and who qualifies for Europe, etc. Andy, there was a feeling among some players that their safety wasn't being taken seriously. And so this will come as a relief to them, won't it? But what is that likely? What's all this likely to mean for the financial future? of many of the clubs in France?
0: Well, it's a big question, Luke, and particularly this week, because uh, Canal and B and Spore, who we established um, some weeks ago, weren't paying up the last tranche of what they owed on this season's TV money, um, have come to a deal um, before this was announced, actually. So before we we knew that um, Ligue 1, Ligue 2 were going to be over, can Allen and, and, and being agreed with the, the the league that they would pay up um, the matches that they'd already had, which, as we were saying at the time, why hadn't they paid for that anyway? Which,
2: which seems entirely reasonable, by the way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, in, in fact, they're, they're not they're not going to pay any more, and uh, some high-profile presidents, notably, obviously, Jean-Michel Olas, who's going to come up in this conversation quite a lot of, of, of Lyon. Um, he um, was quite surprised at this because um, this is them saying goodbye collectively to, what, over 100 million euros. It's, it's quite a lot of money and it's, it's a big gap in the budget, especially now the league's not going forward because this accord that was um, signed before um we, we had the, the the governmental decree um by by edouard Philippe um it, it basically means um that they they're not on the hook for any more money so th- this is something that needs to be plugged there are other holes that need to be plugged uh, notably uh transfer money that hasn't been paid up front so mm. there's uh, the they're looking into creating a central fund um backed by some big banks where basically, the debt that French clubs owe each other in terms of transfers is sold to this central fund that the, the league looks after so that um, the, there's no horrendous interest payments um, accruing or, uh, accruing or they've, they've not got any like, demands for payment or anything like that now mm. th- th- this is going to be have to be fixed on a European level of course because as we've known from the beginning with uh, UEFA's involvement and UEFA's desire which hasn't proved to be workable of getting everyone on the same page because of course every country's different and every country's um, uh, not just uh, public health but emotional reaction to this crisis has been different, as well as the, the speed with which COVID's moving through every country. Um, th- there's, there's still transfer money outstanding um, to French clubs of s- some 600 million. So that's wow. something that, 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 is a, that is a huge hole. And that's something that won't be easy to sort out internally as well, because obviously they can create this central fund for money that's owed for transfers between French clubs, but how do you do that on a European level? It's something that's that's very, very tricky. But you know when we've said all along, Luke, that the way that countries have reacted on an individual level is almost entirely governed by television. I'm sure that will be no surprise to any of our listeners, but it's worth looking back in a, in a week, of course. Well, it's, it's just after the, the Eredivisie being um, canned for the season. Um, of course, the, the, the Belgian League was the first to say, we're going to call it all off, although this has still not been 100% ratified and like we're going to finish the season right here. With Belgium, it was because... Um, the clubs were insured for the, the rest of the TV money and mm. the TV companies were covered for the rest of the TV money. They had a force majeure. So it was like an, an easier decision wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exact, exactly, because it wasn't going to lead to financial ruin for, for anyone. Now, um, the Eredivisie and a lot of the Eredivisie presidents have said, well, we're unlike the top European leagues, the elite European leagues, if you like, because we're not as reliant on um, TV money as the rest of them. And you could say the same about Portugal, who again are going to get governmental guidance later this week on whether they continue. Although the desire of the clubs, it it appears is very much to continue. Although as it was in France, you know, France were planning as if this was Mm. going to restart Um, social distancing uh, restrictions and movement restrictions uh, they going to be relaxed in the next couple of weeks. Uh, teams were getting ready to to go training and and, and all the rest of it, and that they were planning to start on June seventeenth. That was that was the league's plan until um, Philippe put the put the kibosh on it. Um, but this is dictated by TV money as well, because one of the main problems, and when you talked about players' safety, it wasn't just in terms of the spread of the virus; it was in terms of physical load, because you know, we've had so many suggestions and, you know, Gary Neville suggested, you know, why couldn't we play like five games a week just for a, a little while? And I think he was being partly flippant when when he said that and he was trying to get people excited about the return of, of football. I didn't get the impression quite rarely for Gary Neville that he'd, he'd really thought that through and he was completely invested in that idea. Um, he, the, the the French have been saying, right, we're going to play all these all our games between June and and august 3rd then we're going to have less than three weeks off and start season 2021 and this is the point where the coaches and the players start thinking whoa whoa whoa, whoa. What, what are we doing here because this idea that i think a lot of people have that the players um kind of have it easier through this crisis because Yeah, they're on a lot more money than the rest of society. It's simply not true, is it? I mean, they're they're not on holiday at the moment. Okay, they've got bigger gardens. They've got a gym at home. But these are people who, and we talked about this on Jules and Andy way back. I think it was um, uh, me and Kate Mason were talking about it. Um, The fact that these are guys who are, whatever their means, they're used to working outside pretty much every day of their working life. And they're not able to do that. And we'll come on to Spain in a minute where, People just haven't been allowed out at all. They haven't been allowed out for a walk a day or anything like that. They've, they've not been allowed out for any of that. The restrictions have been a, a lot tighter, and you know you've gone through the the centre of Madrid, and um, the, the, the place has has been like proper twenty eight days later sort of sort of business. Um, but going back to France, um, the the sense that the coaches and the players got is again it was all about TV because. It's not just about the money that they're not going to get this season. It's more about the worried the money they might not get next season because there's a new TV deal kicking in with Media Pro, this Spanish company, who have stepped up to the plate, haven't been quite quiet since they've got the rights. They've stepped up to the plate trying to potentially help since the crisis has, has come in because they know they're going to be building a relationship with these clubs. The new TV deal is worth a lot more than the last one. So this is really important. This is a really important point to make because whereas we might look at it as fans and say, well surely it's more important to finish the season that's going on however long it takes, rather than start a season that, you know, hasn't even happened yet. You know, if we have to compromise the season, would it would it be better to truncate next season or whatever? Well that for a lot of leagues and especially for France who've got this big new TV deal and they'll need the money more than ever at a time like this they need next season start that is the most important thing for them and I think when we look at the governmental decision I'd be really really surprised if they hadn't taken into account a the fact that they're going to need that money going forward as you know the, the economy is going to be radically affected and two the fact that players feel that they're in the process of being thrown under the bus a bit yeah, a two doesn't
2: come after A, Andy. It's B.
0: <laughs> I, do, I do that so much. If, if, you're re- if you're really bored during lockdown and you want to work out how many times I do that, we will be accepting <laughs> answers <laughs> at Luke Aaron Moore, um, at Andy Brassel on Twitter.
2: <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it really reminds me of that scene in Home Alone with Buzz when he's talking about what's going to happen to Kevin and he goes, A, two, and D <laughs> <laughs> anyway I want to um, I really want to, it's worth pointing out actually that um, that UEFA have, have, have given a May 25th Deadline for leagues who haven't so far uh, announced how they're going to finish their season, how they're going to do it. But as you were saying to me earlier, Andy, that's that's actually a movable deadline for whatever that means. But I suppose they're just trying to give a bit of uh, a bit of clarity where they can. But yes. I really want to, um, I really want to drill down to something you said uh, regarding the players because um, crossing over to Spain, Sevilla boss uh, Julian Lop- Lopetegui gave an interview to Mundo Deportivo talking about the physical and mental health of players pointing out that you couldn't compare it to just coming back after pre-season because they've not been on holiday, they've not had a chance to unwind, they're living through this as much as the rest of us are and he said he expected if the football did come back, there'd be a lot of injuries, a lot of tentative football basically and he also said main thoughts should be with the health of the country generally I think that's a really interesting point and I don't think it's something that we've talked about an awful lot now we're starting to see articles creep out particularly pertaining to the Premier League about how players feel around coming back and playing again I heard an interview with Burnley's Jay Rodriguez the other day and he said look I've, it's me and my wife and a couple of our, our two dogs we're not we're not, um, we're not. We're not. We have childcare problems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I would personally be prepared to go to a hotel for a month and and do a bit of a camp and then play. But I know mm. plenty. Of, it was essentially saying that but not every player is in that position. Give us a bit of a word on on Lopetegui here and what it means for the prospect of Spanish football returning, but through that lens of what the players will go through.
0: I think the mental health aspect is really important, and particularly when it comes to Spain. Of course, it was. It was just last weekend, last Sunday, that um, children were allowed out to, to to play once a day for the for, for the first time in what a month and a half, uh, a really a really long time. So, um, you know, for for a lot of people, they they, they have been. Literally stuck indoors. I mean, we've seen. We were talking about the last dance earlier. We've seen a Thibaut Courtois hosting these at-home NBA Two K parties, haven't we? With um, Sergio Agüero and um, various basketball players and, and, and stuff like that. Anything really to to, to pass the time, and it is, it's it's really tough. And I don't care how much money these guys have have got. I mean, all of us know. Any any of us, for example, during this who've um had to self-isolate for a bit and then been out if you've been in your house for two or three weeks and you go out for the first time it's weird it it, it's weird you know it's it takes a bit of time to adjust and the, the sense i got from lopetegui in that interview it felt like he was he was quite down like as a lot of people would be from being stuck yeah. inside the whole time and there's a massive leap from that as he says to getting back to competition now they will have three weeks training before the league starts i mean that seems to have been something that's adopted as as european-wide best practice um but it's, it's really going to be hard to pull off and the idea of um you know we, we've We've got again to to a point where more and more leagues are saying, "Well, what if we have to reduce the number of stadiums?" And what we're getting towards is is not even a behind closed doors resumption of football, but an idea that it's almost like a a mini tournament. Now, th- th- this was something that uh, Jean Michel Olas has touched on, um, the, the Lyon president, um, when they're talking about how to decide the rest of the season. I mean, he was still. Deciding, and he's thrown in a, a series of very unhelpful suggestions over the, the, the last week or two. Um, his idea was to to have playoffs uh, and, and really roll them into the the, the next season, which I, I think is a is, is a pretty awful idea and makes things more complicated than than they need to be. But th- this idea that um, teams would have to go into camps. Now again I think there's a cultural difference because in Italy that thing of going in retiro, especially when the team's doing badly of being locked away just them for 3 days 4 days week at a time is not so alien but for for other countries to to have almost an uns, unscheduled like world cup situation or european championship situation i mean it's another thing that's very unsettling and a little upsetting I, I, I think and especially when you talk about we're not just talking about a regular world cup or whatever where i mean uh, speaking from personal experience when you go off and work at a world cup when you're leaving your family for like four or five six weeks and, and your kids it's difficult and it's more difficult for the for the people who are left at home, but it's it's difficult as a as a family. Now, if you think like it's something, it's an absence that families won't have planned for, and it's not just an absence in it's peacetime absence, as you like, it's a mm. it's an absence from your family in a time of extreme uncertainty when families need to support each other and their extended families more than ever. It's a, it's a lot to ask. I don't care how much they're paid. It is a lot to ask. Mm.
2: Yeah, we'll watch that develop with interest. I mean, as, 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 it, as it affects this country, and we imagine there'll be some change in how life is being led before they contemplate football coming back. Because situations, if the situation stays as it is now, for example, say you've got a few kids and a wife and... You are you can't rely on your parents or or your wife's parents to look after the kids because of the current protocols in place, and then you're expected just to, to disappear for three or four weeks. I mean, that's it's just completely untenable. It's it's not it's not mm. ever going to happen. So there definitely needs to be contingencies put in place. But as we keep saying. Um, a lot of this, if not all of it, is is um is in hoc to what the authorities want to do and what they what sort of protocols they pass down. Um, Andy, let's just touch on Germany very very quickly because after that, I want to go and talk about some actual football players and and because a few of them might be on the move and i think that'll be a bit more interesting i know it's important that we keep people updated about what's happening yeah. right in europe but it'd be nice to talk about some players so we'll, we'll just do a quick bit on on the bundesliga and then we'll get on to that and bundesliga as we said before could theoretically start on may 9th but it looks more likely to be the 16th or the 23rd of may we'll find out a bit more i think there's a meeting later today isn't there andy uh
0: yes there is there yeah. is um, we get some more hosted by then? hosted by angela merkel yeah
2: yeah, um, Uli Huness has not let his change in title to honorary president at Bayern stop him having his say, as we'd probably expect. Um, he spoke to Kicker about the latest plans on a on Bundesliga comeback. And to be fair to to Uli, he applauded the German authorities for doing a sensational job so far. And he also weighed in on the TV rights debate because there's talk that league games in Germany will be put across free-to-air television when the league returns Um yeah, which, as I say, which is likely to be in, in a few weeks or so. Um, Andy, what do you make of that? And do you think in, in light of the, the situation developing quite rapidly, we've had France um, cancel between last week and this. Do you still hmm. think Germany is likely to come back? And what do you think about this TV rights thing and this and these comments from Uli hernes
0: Well, firstly, I, I, I want to ask you what you think of uh, Uli Hernes having honour in his title. <laughs> It's,
2: um, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading when I first saw Honorary <laughs> president. I thought, like, oh, yeah, that's happened. And then when I, when I saw him just like complimenting everyone, I was like, what is he doing? This isn't the early I know and love. He's sort of out get soft in your old age.
0: Uh, I think the, the, the point we've got to make here is um, as, as with all of this and as all the way along, things have changed very rapidly. And uh, Uli Hernes was speaking last Sunday, Monday. Um, about this and um, we, we'll go into that a little bit more um, in, in, a, in a minute but i think the fact that um, you know germany's had this uptick since or apparent uptick we have to say apparent uptick because of course um, figures of uh, illnesses and, and and deaths are compiled in a different way and there's always an uptick after, every weekend because of the way they're compiled in Germany. So we don't really know yeah. whether it's a genuine uptick in, in in infections or just the numbers catching up. I, I guess that's something that we'll, we'll find out when Angela Merkel looks at it so far. Um, but I think this does need to be treated with a with a bit of caution. Um, for what it's worth, even though um, May 9th was always given as the, the sort of headline, and I think people really grasped at that because – They're excited at the prospect of a a top European league coming back. The league said, and the CEO of, (coughs) pardon me, the Bundesliga, Christian Seifert, said, well, we're ready to come back on May the 9th if we need to. He never actually said, we want to come back on May the 9th. They they always wanted a, a little bit more time. I think the difference between... Germany and other countries is not just the way that um, Germany has managed to flatten the curve, but the level of preparation, the sense of detail, which we talked about on last week's OTC. And if you're a player, I think there will be players out there who feel apprehensive, but compared to other countries, there seems to have been a lot more, not just economic planning, but planning for how the players are going to live this experience. And I I think that's very, very important. But when we do go back to the economic side of it, the the brilliant bit with Uli Hernes, there's always a little twist. He's a bit like Jose Mourinho. He can't go through an interview without saying anything controversial. He simply can't help it. And um, there was was him. You're thinking, oh, it's new comrade Uli. So, uh, as, as he's talking about, oh, yeah, let's make everything free to air because we don't want people, you know, crowding into front rooms around the Skybox and all, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then he takes a little breath and goes, uh, on the other hand, you can see him taking the little breath as you're, you're reading it. And he goes, on the other hand, we don't want the uh, public broadcasters to be freeloaders. So, um, yeah, <laughs> o- obviously they'll have to pay some money to Sky and Eurosport and DAZN and that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, or oh, he's just it's just a thinly veiled way of saying to the tax man, look, I'm not earning any money from football. There's no <laughs> money in the game anymore, so you can't come after me. <laughs> Andy, just just very, very quickly, uh before we move on, um I think that's a that's a brilliant point to make and and it really is worth drawing the distinction because we've seen a lot of um a lot of quite bombastic chat about uh, the dangers of players returning and football as an industry returning and what that means for the wider health of the country particularly in the UK Simon Jordan who I think talks excellently on on this kind of stuff said that it's not it's not responsible morally to bring football back at this point what's it going to take for people to understand that will it take some kind of tragedy for that to happen but but the reason I'm bringing that up is because the point you're making is that it's been it's a completely different situation in Germany it's dealt been dealt Mm. with completely differently and so it's not we can't compare apples with oranges is that right
0: exactly and they're at a different point as well in terms of the spread and infection i I mean for for england does it seem too soon yes and it goes back to what we were saying before and what i i would like to think we've always said since this started and we've discussed this and going back to what uh lopetegui said and i did only put Hulen lopetegui in the running order because you find it very difficult to say his name.
2: but <laughs> Yeah, out of order. Uh, uh, I think I probably yeah. said it wrong a couple of times today, didn't I? <laughs> people, people are used to it by now.
0: <laughs> You've improved through the practice, I like to think. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's really important to consider, and Italy's definitely been through this, the, the, the sense of where um, the, the people and the players are at emotionally. Because we were definitely at that point like point three weeks ago where... Italian football, and even ultra ultra groups were, we can't face football at the moment. Like, look outside your front door, look on the news, look what's happening. And mm. I, I tend to think England's more at that point at, at the moment, you know? I think the full gravity of what's happening has, has come through. And I think even for the most fervent football fans, like, there are a lot out there who say, you know what, it's just not important at the moment. So there's a sense of, what's safe and there's a sense of what's decent as well and, and those are two separate well not completely separate but slightly separate things <laughs> what
2: the ball and I say it It's time to talk about how the transfer market might change in light of COVID-19. Now, after that, we've selected five players from around Europe of interest that might be on the move or that might have their situation changed um, very soon. And we'll talk about those individually in detail in a moment. But before we do that, Andy, um, how do you anticipate the transfer market changing in light of what's been going on? Does it mean big? clubs will be on the sniff for bargains? Does it mean that um, players like, for example, Dries Mertens will be, uh, will be like gold dust, like hen's teeth because he's out of contract and because he's of such a, a proven top level player? What are, you, what are your general thoughts uh, first and foremost?
0: I think both those things are right, Luke. And um, I think we maybe talked about it last week, but when Ed Woodward comes out of Manchester United and says, look, people talking about like us going out and buying 300 million pound players it's just not going to happen yeah. you know you know look how the world yeah. has changed and I, I think that's i think that's realistic and it's it's interesting to see that you know there's the the amount of transfer speculation that was out there it felt very agent led i would say up until edward wood said that and after that there's a little bit of a reality check the, the sense that you know what this is not going to fly i think people can can see through it i think people can see that it's bullshit and, and and the money's not out there not just in terms of transfer fees but in terms of wages i mean you know we're talking about um not just uh tv deals and how they might be tailored in the future but shirt sponsorships everything is going to have to come down. And, and there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but Dries Mertens is, I think a very interesting one because he could have easily, he's moved... our first
2: player. He's our first one of the five to talk about. So crack on.
0: Right. He, he's, um, one who could have gone in January, obviously. And, um, Me and Nicky Bandini spoke about it, didn't we, a couple of months back. And we were both saying um, how it would have been heartbreaking for him to leave before he got to um, the Napoli record goal scorer line, um, which sort of was won by just sheer consistency and diligence by Marek Hamzik. Although Hamzik, of course, has a very special place in in, in the heart of Neapolitans. Um, I think we've mentioned that, you know, it almost seemed cursed, this, this Napoli record goal thing. Because, of course, Diego Maradona held it. Um, it looked like Cavani was going to break it, you know, fellow South American. Then he left. Then a fellow Argentinian of Maradona, Gonzalo who I believe we'll talk about in a bit. He looked like he was going to, he was going to break it. And then he completely nuked that idea by moving to Juventus and getting his face turned into toilet seat covers and uh, and the rest of it. <laughs> but, 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 but something else that Nikki said, which was something I've really held on to, actually, is she was saying that how uh, well, uh, an indication of how well uh, um, Dries Mertens is adapted to Neapolitan life. They don't call him Dries. They call him Chiro because he's very much one of the guys and he, he always embraced the idea. And I think that's really important because you look at some players and some players who are, you know, quite decent names in European football. You, you know, look at corin totaliso is one, for example. Players who've been on the brink of a move to, to, to Napoli and then kind of got cold feet because they're scared by the reputation of the place. The club feels a little intense. Maybe both of those things. And Mertens went in completely the opposite direction. And for I think for a Northern European, especially, to say, well, not only am I going to come to your club, but I'm going to really embrace the culture, embrace the way of life, become one of you. That's something really special. So whatever happens to Mertens next, and he had a fascinating career, particularly at Napoli. I think the fact that he's at least matched Marek Hamzik's record okay if they come back I would love him to score another goal and push it over the top because I feel he really deserves the title and that's no knock on, on Marek Hamzik um, I think that would be absolutely fantastic
2: yeah, and he's attracted the interest of, of Chelsea. We talked a bit about that on Monday. Um, the boys and I were talking about how I like him because he's he's busy. He's a versatile player. He's 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 had. He, I mean, he's been brilliant in in recent years. I mean, he, he, I, I didn't really know if he could play as that proper centre forward, but he has done. Whether he yeah. can do that in the Premier League, I'm not sure. But um, there's, there's there's been talk that he's been in touch with Frank Lampard personally. If, in light of what you've just said, though, Andy, if he loves the club so much and he loves the the culture, is there, what's the reason he's not signing a new contract?
0: Um, they've not offered him what he wants. Um, right. Uh, and, and there was always the the, the, the sense that they were um, open to the idea of um, selling him away to China, just as they'd done to Marek Hamzik. And Hamzik was someone who loved the club and <clears throat> was loved by the fans, but... You know, when they got the opportunity to get a last payday out of him, that's exactly what they did. Now, earlier this week, interestingly, there was um, a charity auction uh, to raise money uh, for uh, local um, people who've been helping out with with COVID and... um, uh, Dries Mertens auctioned one of his shirts, one of his match-worn Napoli shirts. Do you know who the winning bidder was? It was Aurelio De Laurentiis. No. He, he paid. He paid like he paid like thirty thousand euros for um, for this uh, match-worn shirt of Dries Mertens. And I don't know uh, if, if, if that that like, felt a little sort of mending fences sort of sort mm-hmm. of effort. So he's definitely on the block. He's definitely up for considering something and he wants to get paid. I mean, this is going to be his last contract and there's no reason why yeah, he's he 32 wouldn't... now, isn't he? Yeah. There's, there's no reason why he, he wouldn't want to get paid. Um, so he's going to be a very, very attractive proposition, but so much has gone on at Napoli on and off the pitch. And he has been a little bit marginalized by Gattuso so far. Part of that has been, has been due to, to, to injury, but, and Grumpy co- probably. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> but he and and his wife, actually, who's a TV presenter back in Belgium, um, they're very cosmopolitan people. So for them to go out and try something else out before the end of his career and make a blinding success of it would not be any surprise and would not be inconsistent with Mertens and what he can do. And what you were saying about the moving position is is so, so important. Um, I know regular Napoli watchers will be aware of this, but this was a guy who was a very entertaining, very intuitive, wide player. And as you said, when Maurizio Sarri popped him in as a centre forward, mainly because they had an injury crisis, all of a sudden that turns him... From a B plus player into an A player, and I think if you look at his numbers in recent seasons, you know this was a guy who, when he arrived, you'd never have backed him getting anywhere near the the, the record goal scoring um, sort of peak for, for for Napoli. So he's done an incredible job, and I think so much of it is is down to his his training. He was part of this this football school when he was a teenager in Belgium, where in order to Um, increase your reactions on the pitch and sharpen your reactions on the pitch what you had to do is you did a sort of rondo with the rest of your teammates but at the same time as the coach started it and threw the ball up you would have to solve maths problems at the same time and they would increase in difficulty as the exercise went on and so a lot of people believe that that's Why Dries Mertens is able to make decisions so quickly, so rapidly in a game, because his brain is so perfectly compartmentalized. He can think about three things at once. And you could argue that maybe that's part of the reason why he was able to adapt so well to the centre forward position. Now, I could understand doubts about him being able to play centre forward in the Premier League if we're talking 10 years ago, but. As I've mentioned before, we are now in a post-Modrich and post-David Silva world where, you know, you never would have backed those guys being able to do something in the centre of the pitch in the Premier League if we go back to 2005, 2006, and it felt a bit more like Valley of the Giants, a bit more like 80s NBA. But now... I think that there's, there's, there's a bit more to it. And you, there's always been the sense, and we saw that when I think Fernando Torres arrived at, at, at Liverpool. If you've got that little bit of technique and you can handle yourself that, that little bit extra technically and you can handle yourself physically, there's no sense that, that Mertens can't put up with the rough stuff because goodness knows he's had enough of it in Italy, that you will thrive. And I tend to think it's, he's a problem solver as a player and I think this makes him very very valuable and that's why Chelsea aren't the only team in town for him you know there are other clubs interested and you should be interested in him he's fantastic and he's free
2: yeah and I also think that um, be be careful because if um, if you do make your players as a young man in training and do maths problems, they're probably going to want to end up earning more money because they understand more about <laughs> how it works. Um, another Bad news agents. Yeah, exactly. Another forward who was, um, who's um, played at Napoli is your friend and mine, Andy, but particularly your friend, one of your favourite uh, ever players, uh, Edinson Cavani, currently of Paris of course. Yeah, exactly. You, you're the man with the uh, Edison Cavani biscuit tin, famously. <laughs> um, he he's apparently now, as of this week, open to extending his stay at PSG, despite interest that's gone back several decades from Diego Simeone, at Atletico Madrid, <laughs> and also, I think, also, I think um, Antonio Conte's quest to sign every player uh, ever at Inter. What, what's what's been the latest development? causing him to say that he might he might want to stay now.
0: Well, this is going to push poor Lars Sivertsen over the edge if he doesn't sign for Atletico. So uh, let's hope yeah. for Lars' sake that uh, this deal is consummated. Um, but I think there are a few strands uh, to this. I think a lot of players will feel that they feel a bit happier at home. And this is his home. He's been there for a very long time. He's the club record goal scorer. He's adored by his teammates, which I think is a very, very important point to to underline. Um, He's adored by the supporters there. And, you know, I think there maybe is, as he's riding shirtless horseback uh, across Uruguay, a sense of, yeah, I I miss the old place, you know. And the second point, and uh, possibly even more important point, is the growing sense in the last um, month or two, Paris maybe aren't all in on Mauro Icardi. Um, you know there was, there was a feeling. <laughs> he, hasn't he hasn't even done anything. He hasn't even done anything yet. But I'll I tell think you what, that, Andy, I think that's the whole problem.
2: Yeah, one one suspicion of a sniff of a suspension of financial fair play, and they're at it again.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think the, the issue with Icardi is not the stuff that people like to talk about. It's what he is on the pitch because. He went through a little scoring drought, a mini scoring drought. And that's the point where you miss Cavani because you're like, what does Icardi do when he's not scoring goals? The answer is not much. I mean, as a penalty box player, he's absolutely peerless and he's superior to Cavani in that sense. So when it's going well, I think it's very easy to be all in on Icardi and to think, oh, well, Cavani's a bit old now. We've got a lot out of him. And, and all the rest of so it. So what you're saying is they're losing their nerve then? What? Well, no, I'm I'm saying everything he does off the ball, you can miss that, and everything he brings to the team in terms of effort, pressing, heart, all that sort of stuff, which kind of links to the why he's so loved by his teammates and and the supporters. That's something that can make you think, oh, hang on. I mean, he's not going to be a cheap option to keep. There's no doubt about that. But if you're talking about uh, shelling out for a guy who you felt was an opportunity, but has maybe as, as the transfer goalposts have shifted, is now a slightly more expensive signing if they take up that near 70 million euro option on him. And he's one of those guys who doesn't do anything when he hasn't got the ball. Does that make you think, well, actually, we're going to convince Edinson that he wants to stay here now? So I think that's definitely back on on the table. But of course, there's still the possibility that he might decide to go to Atletico or even Manchester United, who, who I gather are, are more interested than ever.
2: Yeah, I feel with Cavani, who has been, you know, occasionally disrespected at PSG as well. I don't know if that comes into his thinking mm. or whether that, that's at play, but he's not, he didn't play an I mean, this season in France is now over, so we can talk about it in the past tense. He didn't play an awful lot, really. He didn't start an awful lot of games in the league last season. And he's also 33 now. So is, is, it, um, is it really the, the route they want to go down? I know, I know he's symbolic to the club, and he's been a huge player for them in their in their um, new era. But for them to kind of what you lose their nerve a little bit, and the reason I use that term is because when you describe what's happening, when they start to have second... Um, thoughts about Akadi and what he offers and thinks you know what maybe it's better the devil you know I would be worrying if, if that were me supporting that club because uh, should they really be nailing their colours to a 33 year old's mast who's clearly not really going to be an improving player over the next coming seasons
0: but I think there's a good argument that he can maintain that level I mean he keeps himself extraordinarily fit. But Eric and Maxim just-
2: Chupo moting in the way in the wings <laughs> by the way bit of respect <laughs> if you don't
0: mind yeah, yeah. Eric Maxim's not much of a horse rider, though, is he? <laughs>
2: that is possibly true. and Probably true. We'll, let, we, we'll watch that. We'll watch that situation develop with interest. Um, number three on our five. I mean, I've, no, this is not a top five for any reason. I've just noticed that we've got five players um, on the, on the <laughs> running order. So I thought I'd turn it into a kind of, you know, an impromptu top five. They're all forward players as well, weirdly. Uh, Gonzalo Higuain, uh, his father said. Um, that he intends to run his contract down at Juventus, which could be a big problem for them. Obviously, he's a high earner. They need to get their wage bill down. He's 32, so just a year younger than than Edinson. Um, he spent some time on loan at Milan and Chelsea recently. He's out of contract in the summer of 2021. Is this a blow for Juventus, Andy? Because they felt like they would probably have a good chance of moving him on, something they really wanted to do.
0: It is a big deal for them. Uh, Because we've spoken on a number of occasions that the difficulty for Juventus, that they got all the incoming transfer business they wanted last summer, but they couldn't ditch Dybala despite trying to. They couldn't ditch Higuain like they wanted to. I think in a way, that's why me and a few other people felt that this was like a great opportunity before all this, for Juventus to win the Champions League this season because they have this incredible squad, this incredible squad that's completely unsustainable, by the way, on a a financial level. You know, you think the only two clubs running higher wage bills at the moment are Real Madrid and Barcelona. So even though um, they're one of the more financially efficient teams in um, Serie A, well, in Europe, the most financially efficient team in, in, in Serie A. You know, they changed that when they went in on Cristiano Ronaldo. And what are they going to have to do to balance the books in this post COVID world? I mean, this is just one issue amongst, I would say, myriad issues for Juventus.
2: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating one, isn't it? Um, And we don't really know what football is going to look like post-COVID-19. So, again, that will play into it as well. Uh, Number four on our list, Wissam Ben Yedder. Apparently, everyone wants to sign him now. He's been great at Monaco since signing from Sevilla. scored loads of goals in a fairly average team. He'll be 30 next season. It's a great story, Ben Yedder, because it took him till about 27 to really get on most people's radar. Didn't make his debut for France internationally till a couple of years ago. And now he's flavour of the month. There's hope for us all. There's not hope for us all, because Andy, you and I are both (laughs) around 40. But there's hope for a lot of people. uh, And Ben Yedder is one of them. Looks like he could be possibly on the verge of, of, of a really big move quite late in his career which is quite nice to see
0: yeah and i think the other difference between you and me and vis and ben Yedder is uh, neither of us were ever any good at futsal which was one of the things that well, you
2: haven't seen me play i mean you're right but you haven't <laughs> seen me play and that's disrespectful
0: you say i haven't seen you play it's just too fast for me ref it's just too fast for me.
2: <laughs> that wasn't futsal my friend which i admit requires even more pace than normal football <laughs> yeah
0: I think the thing is with Ben Yedder because he was characterized as someone who was small and skillful. A lot of people didn't believe he could be a professional footballer for a long time. So, he was a bit of a a late contender in his always in his career. And um, when it gets further down the line, um, Toulouse and their president Olivier Sadron who is famous for driving infamous for driving a really hard bargain eventually let him go. So he had to pass up a couple of moves a bit earlier in his career. He's such an intuitive footballer. He's so witty and smart and such a brilliant finisher. Of course, a lot of um, British fans saw that when he scored those two goals for what was really quite a rubbish Sevilla team actually at Manchester United. And as time goes by, you think, hang about, how is it that Vincenzo Montella didn't do anything right there for four months yeah. <laughs> that he was in charge It yeah. still managed to knock United and Mourinho out of the Champions League? Well, this was a bit of a funny move to, to, to Monaco because obviously they give him a pay bump. Obviously, he gets to go back to, to Ligue 1, which I don't know if is a, a good thing or a bad thing. I think you can think with the amount of money that Monaco spent last summer, they're really ambitious. True, but what they are not or that what they've not been this season is focused. And he's propped them up, really, through his brilliance. And as you say, to score that many goals, and he's the joint top scorer in Ligue 1 with Mbappe, which... I think given the complete divergence in their circumstances, is a really incredible achievement. I think the interesting thing about a lot of these strikers that we're, we're, we're talking about, it's this sense that you can actually get better with age. And it's something that Aris Adaris talked about ages ago when he said, well, someone said to him, like, why is it that, say, you and Antonio Di Natale, for example, at Udinese, how can you get better in your 30s? And he said, well, Realistically, because there's improved diet and improved physical training and all that sort of stuff, if you can maintain your physical form deep into your 30s, why wouldn't you improve as a player? You're more experienced. You're more canny. You're more comfortable with your sense of self. So I think that's something that's notable with all these players. Now, Ben Yed is a couple of years younger than the previous three we've mentioned. But if he can keep himself fit, and if you saw that initial picture of him after he came back from summer holiday in his Monaco kit, well, I think there has to be a degree of doubt over it. But... um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, you know, Kappa kits are tough for all of us. I, I, I think we can say yeah. that. <laughs> Do the old Antonio the, Cassano, is he good old? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. But um, I think it's, it's totally logical that someone like him would attract the interest of the likes of, well, who's been mentioned? like Manchester City, I think even Liverpool, mm. the aforementioned Chelsea. There are loads of clubs who should be interested in him. He's someone who... I think he's got a bit more in the tank because he's a late starter and because he plays with his brain so much, that's something that I think makes you look at him and think he's a guy who would age well.
2: Yeah, and he's had a bit of a journey as well and he's probably learned a lot. He's quite quite a clever player anyway, as you've already mentioned, but he, these type of journeys that players have, where well, they, they step up, they step up, they step up. Maybe they even step across once and they've, mm. they've been around a bit and learned... Um, Learned the hard way, I suppose, means it does stand him in good stead when it comes to making yet another step up, simply because well, yeah. simply because they've done it before. Something, you,
0: it, something you always forget. Sorry for interrupting, but something no, you right. always you always forget with um, ben Yedda is he was part of the the the, the party group, wasn't he, with Yann uh, and Villa and Antoine Griezmann on a French under twenty one duty. You know, some of the first victims of Facebook when they went out on the lash between the two legs of uh, a playoff tie an under 21 playoff tie and they got snapped on Facebook yeah and uh, they ended up getting banned for absolutely ages he was one of those Hard to think, um,
2: hard to sort of decide whose career's gone in a better trajectory since then <laughs> out of Yamavilla yeah, Villa and uh, Antoine Griezmann, but we'll let the listeners decide that one. And really please don't ever apologise for interrupting me, mate. I mean, it's my that's my stock in trade, by the way. So, you know, I don't mind a taste of my own medicine from time to time, despite what other people might think. Um, listen, I want to get on to our fifth player. Uh, it's Florian Tovan. Um, has a year left on his deal at Marseille, uh, but conducted an Instagram Live this week, um, which among players is probably the enemy of football clubs everywhere because i can't stop him, <laughs> he said uh, i've said it i'm staying i've fought to come back and you think that i'm gonna leave like that i'm good as i am i'm staying at marseille i am telling you i am staying the case is closed he struggled with um any ankle injury hasn't he uh, and he's probably a bit scarred from a move to newcastle that was against his will and didn't quite work out but uh, Andy, I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm right in saying that Marseille were banking on selling him for a decent fee because of a pressure that's coming to them via financial fair play. So this is a bit more of a complicated one than it than it first looks, isn't it?
0: Yeah, something that uh, there is a huge problem for for, for Marseille, and um, it's something that you touched on there when you said he's got a year left on his deal and they've not got an enormous amount of of saleable assets you know you look at um, some of the big players Stev Mandanda getting on a bit Dimitri Payet getting on a bit Bubakar Kamara is the jewel in the crown uh, the best defender he has been brilliant in midfield this season as as we've said before but um, they really don't want to sell him
2: three three of those four players including Tovan are players who've come to England hated it and gone back again
0: (laughs) I'm not sure Dimitri Payet hated it did he?
2: He did at the end. I mean, do you not remember the last six months of his time at West Ham? He hated it.
0: (laughs) I think I remember the last six weeks. (laughs) That was pretty tough, wasn't it?
2: Listen, I'll concede it might have taken him longer to hate it than the others, but he did hate it in the end.
0: But you know what? Your point that you make about Tovan as being scarred from his move to Newcastle, that probably feels like a million years ago for everyone else. This is a key point in this, because not only was he keen to... um, Impress in this Instagram live that um, he was keen to stay at Marseille. Everyone knows what Marseille means to me, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to walk out before, uh, like, as we're just going to get into the Champions League. And he was very complimentary about andre village Willis-Bosch and said how much he loved him, even though he's played, what, half an hour of football under him. Um, mm. it, there is the thing about the Newcastle move because basically, Vincent Lebrun, who was the president of Marseille at the time, said, look, we need the money. You've got to go. And he did it and he was sold to the wrong club at the wrong time and he hated it. The people, well, the fans hated him. And, um, you know, there's the whole tuxedo incident as as well. It wasn't wasn't there. So mm. I think for him, especially when he's a bit older, he's a bit more confident. He's three times the player that he was then. Not just the potential, but the, the, the player. And he's, he's sitting there thinking, no, 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 no you're not going to make me do what I I don't want to do, especially at this point in my career. And if he does let that deal run down, of course, it's potentially ruinous for for Marseille. But, Mm. because this is a player who they wouldn't have sold for 40 million last year, but he gets power of attorney. And I think at this point in his career, 26 years old, that's really important to him.
2: Yeah, and for those who don't remember the tuxedo incident reference there by Andy, uh, Florian Tovan turned up uh, to a Newcastle game dressed in a tuxedo and... um one of the headlines from the time, it was about five years ago, one of the headlines in the newspaper at the time was Newcastle United players slammed as disgrace for turning up in tuxedos. I mean, is it, I mean it's probably quite ill-advised. I'm not sure it's quite the level of a disgrace. I mean, if people want to take it a bit too seriously, that's fair enough. But it, it was essentially only a bow tie, really.
0: Isn't it a disgrace, like turning up in, like, you know, shorts and a ripped top? Yeah, I'd say so. Nice. I think it's nice for him to be turned out well.
2: Yeah. Um, We do need to to pivot slightly. And before we go, we've just about enough time to talk um, about the sad passing of Michael Robinson ex-Liverpool and Brighton player somewhat underrated as a player by the way not yes. not someone who immediately springs to mind but has had, had a very very good career um, played in, um, in several high profile games won trophies at Liverpool in what was a golden era for them and then interestingly moved to Spain and become something of a broadcasting legend he's passed away at the age of just 61 after an illness there was an incredibly touching and really well done um, obituary and tribute Brilliant. to him by Sid Lowe in the Guardian I'd recommend you give that a read um, if you get a moment mm. but Andy do you want to give us a brief summary of, of, of Michael's career in Spain on and off the pitch because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a life less ordinary it's a road less travelled it's quite an interesting one so it's worth giving people the, the, the kind of um, the detail on
0: that yeah totally because I think you know you think of him winning the 84 European Cup with Liverpool and then him going to Osasuna and of, of course the relationship between the um, England and Spain and England and the rest of Europe generally was very, very different in, in the late 80s. But I think uh, there will be a lot of people thinking, oh, that's his career winding down. Where did it go wrong? But I think he would have looked back on it as the point where it all started to go right. Because as you say, he was someone who was underrated. As Sid Lowe pointed out in that brilliant obituary, he was someone who was underrated by himself, certainly as a, as a footballer. Mm. But mm. what he was so good at, is was relating to people and that was something that came across so well in the the program that he was the most famous for el dia después you were always able to to watch clips of it on on the internet uh, afterwards and I, I ended up seeing quite a lot of it and um what was brilliant about el dia después is to have someone who was um not spanish but managed to understand Spanish football culture and what was important in it so well. He's so different from 99.9% of ex-footballer analysts um, because, you know, there are some increasingly good ones out there, but he understood that it wasn't just about analysing the game and it wasn't just about the players. It was about the culture and all that sort of stuff. So... He was someone who had a, a big creative input into this program. And he was someone who understood that um, it was worth looking at the fans, sort of extraordinary things that they that they would do. And so, you know, you'd have, you know, the 10-year-olds getting after a linesman and throwing peeper shells at him and <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Something that's very particular to culture. But he, he, he trod a really fine line, actually, because he was someone who – Managed to find the humour and find the the, the warmth in um, Spanish fan culture and the experience of of watching football in Spain, but with without like taking the piss in a mean way, it was always quite affectionate. And that's something that's very, very hard to do, I think, um, especially when it comes to players relating to fans. And I, I think it's fair to say that very few of them can actually do it that well. So that was the reason that I, I guess it's hard to express. And a, a lot of uh, people who cover Spanish football and live in Spain co- covering Spanish football have been quite big on that this week. The fact that it's hard to get across the affection that was out there for him and how much people love that program and um, when, it, when it was when it was canned, he, he went off and did a few other things and he, he brought his own real humanity to that. but uh, the, the thing I saw the most of him on was El Dia Después and it, it was it was unique. I can't really think of another football program like it in Spain or, or probably anywhere else actually. Yeah, he'll be he'll be sadly
2: missed, uh, particularly in Spain and condolences must go to his his family and his friends. Um, all right, Andy, that's about as much as we've got time for this week, I think. Um, do remember to come back, guys, and check out the preview show tomorrow on Football Ramble Daily. There'll be a Blizzard episode on Saturday as well and an At The Match revisited on Sunday. Every day we're doing it. We every day on Football Ramble Daily, as they say in some rap circles, I believe, we out here every day. <laughs> every day uh, it's Football Ramble Daily thank you very much for joining us on on the continent patreon.com forward slash Football Ramble Daily to uh, support and subscribe for extra bonus content and there's plenty of it as well Andy all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for your time
0: all day every day
2: yeah it's goodbye from him and it's goodbye from me Luke Moore endorses this show